And uh, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Colossians 2 and verse 16. We're going to continue our series on Christian liberty. We just began it, our biblical liberty. We began it last Lord's Day to get an overview. And as I had mentioned, the first place that we will start is with the liberty of the individual believer. And today we're going to speak on the doctrine of liberty of conscience, liberty of conscience. And the conscience and its liberty is such a deep doctrine that likely there will be two or three sermons on this. So this is really an introductory sermon to give us sort of the texture and sense of the doctrine itself, that in future sermons we might delve deeper into these things as well, showing us just sort of the depths of the Word of God when it comes to such topics and themes. Well, Colossians 2 16 to verse 23. Let us hear the word of the living God. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body, by joints and bands having nourishment, ministereth, and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using? after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let us pray for the preaching now. O God of heaven, we plead for the Holy Spirit. We remember not long ago we heard that the Lord will give us the Holy Spirit to them who ask. So we ask, O God, and we ask that the Spirit would preach powerfully through this minister, that he would preach the mind and will of God, and that the Spirit would open our hearts to receive the wonders that are found in the Word of God, that we would, by the Spirit's operation now, stand fast for the liberty that Christ has set us free in, that we would be set on this broad place that we would not give up our liberty, whether to popes or presidents, that we would know the mind and will of God for us, and that we would contend for Christ and his lordship over us. Bless the preaching of the word to these ends, and so let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of the congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last week we heard the apostle in Galatians 5, verse 1 say, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. We remember the apostle said we are to stand fast for Christian liberty. Uh, Christian liberty is a battlefield. It is a battleground. And perhaps, as I was thinking on this, there is no greater battleground apart from the gospel 
for the liberty of the Christian, but the conscience of the Christian. The conscience of the Christian is perhaps the greatest battleground that we have outside of contending for the gospel itself that we must fight for, which is the liberty of the Christian's conscience. For far too many will seek to bind the conscience of the Christian in ways that it ought never be bound. Both church and state, and it's sad to put the church here in this, both church and state have at times been enemies of the liberty of the individual Christian's conscience. Perhaps most famously, a lot of our children who know church history know this, but you remember most famously perhaps at the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther resisted both the state and papal authorities. What did he say when he was there in that sort of inquisition? Your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of Scripture, or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of Pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves, by manifest reasoning I stand convicted by the Scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word, I cannot and will not recant anything. For to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here it is, the great doctrine of the liberty of conscience. The conscience being captive to the word of God and the word of God only. Showing that conscience must be first, and so many of us, we don't quote Luther in its entirety, and we think certainly all he said is to act against our conscience is neither safe to us nor open to us. But he first says, my conscience must be captive to the word of God. And to go against a conscience that is captive to the word of God is neither safe for us nor open to us. And that's the battlefield, isn't it? Liberty of conscience. And we don't have to spend much time on this, though we will, because we have to be reminded of these things. In this, the papacy feels it is in their power to bind your consciences to their decrees apart from the word of God. They will tell you, right, it is wrong to eat meat on certain days. They will tell you it is wrong for priests to marry and so on and so forth, that one must celebrate their holy days of their decreeing. This is an imposition on conscience. What is it? It is telling you that what we say is right and holy and true, and for your conscience to go against it is sinful. That is a man binding your conscience because God has never said these things. And so conscience must be bound to the word and not to men. Yet even in Protestantism, we have run into those who seek to bind the conscience. Many have imported from Rome uh, whom they once vowed to uh, oppose ceremonies. We've imported days and seasons. We've also, like Rome, taken into creating man-made rules. You know, our friends in fundamentalism, for as much as they say they, they hold tight to the word of God, they will decree things like it is sinful for you to drink alcohol rather than informing the conscience with the word that says, wine maketh glad the heart of man, Psalm 104. But, you know, we would also be remiss in Reformed churches to not preach to the conscience that the word says drunkenness is a sin. 
Right? The conscience has to be appropriately um, uh, convicted and bound to the word of God, all of the word of God. Not just part of the word of God, all of the word of God. This is why the Apostle Paul was, was clear of the blood of all men. He had not shunned to declare unto all men all of the word of God. Our conscience must be held captive to not just the parts of the word we like, but all of the word of God. And the church can often be guilty of imposing on conscience what is not there in the Bible. Then there is the state, if that's the church. The state has often imposed on the consciences of its people. Um, That's evil too. We remember King James, of course, uh, who imposed things such as the book of sports, enforcing on the consciences of God's people that they must perform recreation on the Sabbath day. Then there was his imposition of the five articles of Perth, which required kneeling at the supper and the observance of holy days such as Christmas and Easter. Now, what is that but an imposition on the consciences of God's people, beloved? Things that God has not said do or do not do, yet one man will come and say, you must do these things. Imposition on conscience and the liberty of. Even today, we have the government of the United States trying to inform consciences that transgenderism, homosexuality, religious pluralism, forced vaccinations, and other things are good. And those who oppose such things are evildoers. What is that but an imposition? Are you not seeing this is an imposition on your conscience? Society itself trying to conform your conscience to something other than the word of God. That is a violation of the liberty of conscience that we have. So even this brief survey, and maybe you didn't even think on these things before, even this brief survey shows you this. The conscience has been a perennial battlefield. Men are fighting, fighting to be the lords of your conscience. Absolutely so, because those who control the consciences of the people control the people. And they want to wrest away from Christ his lordship over your conscience, that Christ alone is Lord of the conscience. That's the case here in Colossae as well, in Colossians chapter 2. Men seeking to displace the doctrines and commandments of God, who is Lord of the conscience, to make themselves mere men the lords of conscience. But the Christian, as we heard in Galatians, is to stand fast for the liberty of conscience Christ has given them. To know that conscience must be bound only to the word of God and that only Christ through the word of God can be the ruler of the Christian's conscience. All intrusions then into the liberty of conscience must be rejected and refused. Just as King Uzziah was rejected out of the holy place, as we heard last time in Second Chronicles. Well, so then our theme is with that introduction the liberty of conscience, the liberty of conscience. And as I said earlier, I believe I'll tackle this in two or three sermons. We'll have to speak of fundamentals today, but we'll also have to speak about the interaction of conscience to rulers in both church and state, when it is appropriate to obey and disobey for conscience sake. And then we'll also have to deal with things indifferent or adiaphora in matters of conscience. And so we'll probably have another couple of sermons in these things. But today let's deal with fundamentals. Um, And so we'll divide our sermon into two questions that serve as our headings. First is, who is the conscience's Lord? And second is, how is the conscience bound? So first, who is the conscience's Lord? And before we dive into our text, let's deal with definitions. 
we need to ask, what is our conscience? You know, we, we often talk about conscience and we can um, sort of assume we know these things. And I will say much can be said on the conscience and much has been said on the conscience. I think last time I spoke on conscience, I mentioned that William Perkins, Volume 8, is an entire volume de- dealing with just the conscience. And so you can learn much on the conscience from uh, our Father in the faith there. And we could easily have a whole sermon series on the conscience. But for today, I want to use a simple definition that really gets to the heart of the matter. And it's this. Uh, children, you might want to take notes on this. The conscience is the internal God-given faculty of the soul which decides on the lawfulness or unlawfulness of our actions and affections, approving or condemning them. So our conscience, I'll say it again, is the internal God-given faculty of the soul which decides on the lawfulness or unlawfulness, or if you prefer, the, the goodness or the evil, the good or the evil of our actions and affections, approving or condemning them. So it's your barometer, right, of right and wrong, essentially, an internal faculty of the soul. Romans 2.15 lends biblical support to this definition, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So our conscience then basically tells you whether or not what you are doing is right or wrong in God's eyes, whether it is holy or unrighteous. And as Romans 2.15 leads us, it must be the word of God that informs it. What we have to remember is conscience is not always right. That is a fundamental truth, and we must remember it. You know, for instance, right, a person, and maybe this has been you, or maybe you've heard somebody say this, a person might say, my conscience is fine not worshiping God. I don't feel any pangs about not worshiping God. So it must be fine. Or their conscience, right? How many times have you heard something like this, right? My conscience says it's fine to commit adultery. I'm at peace at it or fine to be a fornicator. Or their conscience is fine in participating in the Roman mass. What is that? Conscience is out of tune. It's out of line. It's not informed by the word of God. Conscience is not in itself uh, a trustworthy guide as fallen men and women unless it is informed by the word of God. And then, and only then, do we know that what conscience is telling us is correct. Because we are fallen and sinners, it is not a trustworthy guide always. It needs informing and it needs reforming and it needs to be informed by the word of God. So take that as well as part of your definition of conscience. When your conscience convicts you, right? Not all the time when you are convicted in your conscience either, are you actually sinning? You have to ask, is this a sin as God sees it? Because my conscience may be out of tune. And when you, your conscience um, says you're doing something right or you believe you're doing something right, well, you have to ask, let me check. Is this in accord with the word of God? So conscience has to be, but if it is informed by the scripture, then you absolutely must do as conscience dictates. That's why, as I said earlier, it's very maddening when you hear men quote Luther partially when they say to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Because it's it's not safe or open to us if our conscience is held captive to the word of God. Otherwise, we need to get, we best get our conscience in line with the word. Right? 
Because earlier he said, my conscience, conscience is taken captive by, the, uh, by God's word. So our conscience must be informed by the word. And it's the faculty of the soul which decides on the lawfulness or unlawfulness of our affections and actions. Well, so then who is the Lord of the conscience? Well, if the conscience is informed by the word of God, then the Lord of the conscience is God. Christ alone is the Lord of your conscience. Christ only. No man, no woman, no power, no principality is the Lord of your own conscience. God only. And he has kept your conscience free from impositions on it by any mere man. In fact, to give in to the imposition of men on your conscience is to deny his lordship to be Lord of your conscience. This is what is most important about it, right? No matter how religious a man seems, no matter how authoritative he seems, whether he wears a pointy hat or magnificent vestments, whether his pronouncements are made in Latin or English, or he comes with the great seal of the President of the United States, no man is Lord of the Christian's conscience. Ultimately, then, it is important to have a well-informed conscience for out of conscience is how you serve and worship God, isn't it? That's why he has to be Lord of the conscience because it is out of conscience that your life serves God. Your conscience will move you to act, won't it? Your conscience will tell you what is right to do in this time or that time or even right now in worship. That is why it's vital that Christ be the Lord of your conscience because it is the means to serving him. It's the motive force. John 8, 9, right? When, when Christ, that's that woman caught in adultery. John 8, 9, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one. Christ convicts their conscience and their conscience then being pricked, they do what is right at that time. You must inform your conscience by the word. Even before you think of others imposing on it, you yourself must impose upon your conscience the word of God. You know, some people inform their conscience with worldly ideas. Some people inform their conscience with man-made rules, calling what is then what? Good, evil, and what is evil, good. Many Christians do that. Do you know how many Christians think it's no problem for homosexuals to be in relationships with each, other's to, with each other today? Where did they get that from? It wasn't the word of God. The world has informed their conscience, hasn't it? And that is wrong. That is sinful. So conscience must be informed by the word. So with these truths in place, we have the understanding necessary to tackle our text. Well, in Colossians 2, we find that men had intruded upon the conscience of Christians. Consider phrases to that effect the Apostle Paul used. Verse 16, let no man therefore judge you. Verse 18, let no man beguile you. Verses 20 through 22, wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. You see that? How often men, mere men, are being brought before us. Let no man, the commandments and doctrines of men, you see how the, Lord, how the apostle is setting before you the contrast between men and the Lord. 
who is to be the Lord of the conscience. Let no man then beguile you in these ways. So the text teaches men seek to impose themselves on you uh, to subvert the Lord's authority. Now, what we have to be mindful of is that even church authorities will seek to impose upon your conscience. Sad to say. You remember in Acts 4.19, but Peter and John answered and said unto them, that is the Sanhedrin, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. So here are religious men, Jewish high court prohibiting the apostles to preach Christ. No matter how high the authority on the earth, even church authority, even a synod, right? Should it go against the word of God, we obey God and not man. For men are never to be lords of our consciences. I would just have you remember, Christian, that Christ by rights through his death has purchased you to make you the, make him the Lord of your conscience. 1 Corinthians 7.23, you are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. You are to serve God from a clear conscience. You remember from last week's sermon that Christian liberty is what? The liberty to serve Christ. That's what it is. Our liberty is about Christ's lordship. It's not about my rights. It's actually first and foremost about his rights. And that's what the Christian often forgets. And and they become libertarian in a way. They become licentious because they're always thinking about themselves and what they want. That is not Christian liberty. Christian liberty is the liberty to serve the Lord in holiness, as you heard. It is the liberty to make Christ and Christ only your Lord. He is the only lawgiver who can give the conscience its commandments. James 4.12 is a key verse. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? One lawgiver for your conscience. And that is the Lord himself. You know, it's very striking, right? If there are any group of men who felt like they could impose on the church, it would be the apostles, wouldn't it? And yet the apostles were very clear on the limitation of church power. The elders in Christ's church, they taught, are not lawmakers. They're not lords over the conscience. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. Christ himself said to the disciples, neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. Matthew 23, 10. See, there's one master of your conscience. Peter, the man Rome calls their first so-called pope said, 1 Peter 5, 3, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. Even the apostles themselves said, we can't lord it over God's people. We can't invent rules. We can't make laws for them. No, we must only minister what Christ has given to us to minister. And in that, the authority of church elders, as we have heard from this pulpit often, is ministerial and not magisterial. They only can minister what the Lord himself has given in the word of God, meaning we cannot, the only thing we can compel you to do is what the word says, in other words. We can only discipline you according to what the discipline of the word and the Bible says. But we cannot legislate new commands for you. 
That would be magisterial authority. We cannot put before you as commands and doctrines anything more or anything less than what the word of God says or can be derived from the word by good and necessary consequence. That means, you know, to my fellow elders here, we must be very careful in what we institute in the congregation. Must we not? We cannot impose anything on God's people that he himself would not impose on them. We must never institute anything that might cause the conscience to be grieved. What consciences say, where is this in the word of God? Right? Every person who comes to worship here must have a conscience clear to say, at least I see where these things come out of the word of God. In contrast, Rome says their doctrines, and here is the blasphemy, right? Their doctrines are just as binding as the word of God. Putting their tradition and commandments on par with Holy Scripture, which of course is blasphemy. Showing, of course, the Pope is that Antichrist, for he puts himself, think on this, how many ways he does this. He puts himself on par with God to say my authority is just as binding as God's authority in the word of God. And he has made himself the Lord of the conscience. Terrible thing. What do you think about his recent allowing for blessings on same-sex couples? We find that the man of sin approves of sin. And uh, he disapproves of righteousness. And so we find that no man has that authority to bless what God himself will not bless. So men will do this kind of thing and impose on the conscience. And then those then, right, who oppose biblically same-sex relations, what is happening? Their conscience is being imposed upon. Because the Pope says a blessing can be given where no blessing is found in the word of God. So, with that basic understanding, let's move to our second question, which is, how is the conscience bound? And by that, I mean, what are some of the techniques that men will use to bind your conscience, to make it captive, not to the word, but to themselves? Well, from this text, I think you find three techniques men will use to rule over your conscience. And we would be, we ought to be wise to these techniques. And if our conscience is bound in any of these ways to anything but the word of God, Let us release our conscience today like Luther before us so that we would have our conscience bound only to the word of God. First technique you find men will use is in verse 16. They will seek to bind your conscience to the Old Testament ceremonies. That's what's in view in terms of meat or drink or holy day or new moon or Sabbath, not day, but days. These are all references to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament not the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. Now, Paul, as you recall, dealt similarly in Galatians 5 in these matters last week. So what we have to be aware as these things pop up in the Bible so often is men will seek to impose on us the old Judaic laws on our conscience. You know, there's a reason. You might think, well, that seems highly unlikely, Pastor. Well, really, there's a reason that this text is preserved as Scripture for all ages because men do this kind of thing. Uh, Do not think this is an imposition on conscience that only Galatia and Colossae had to deal with. You recall, actually, and here's a great illustration, you know, the denomination of the church that we, uh, of this building that we rent from. They seek to put the Old Testament ceremonial laws binding on their people, the dietary laws, right? You know that full well as we consider our lunches. They try to keep meat 
such as pork and shellfish. And this is what's being spoken of here. Meat in our uh, verse 16. So you also find other groups, Messianic Jewish groups, will try to seek to follow the customs of the three biblical feasts. The keeping a feast that the apostle is contending against in this text. Many will keep the old dietary laws as well. There are other groups as well. There's that bizarre movement of black Hebrew um, Israelites who will keep the Old Testament ceremonies. I even knew, shockingly, a Presbyterian family who would try to keep the Passover. It's crazy, really. Shows us that we have need to know our Bibles better. This is very plain here. In the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2, read it. We're not to be bound to these old ceremonies. There's a, a reason that this text is preserved. Don't think that men will not seek to impose on your conscience with the Old Testament ceremonies. It will happen. But what does the text say? These things are a shadow of things to come, but the body that is the substance is in Christ. Christ has fulfilled these old ceremonies. They were meant to point to him. To run back to them is to deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah to come. Remember what Paul said in Galatians. This is to return back to bondage. To return these ceremonies is to return to bondage to the ceremonial law. It does violence to the liberty of your conscience and it is an attack vector on Christ as Lord of the conscience because Christ has fulfilled these things and you're robbing the work of Christ from Christ. In no way must your conscience then be bound to the Old Testament ceremonies. You know, men will. This is why you need to know all the Bible, beloved. I don't know how many people have been beguiled by men like that. They'll, they'll open the Bible. They'll go to an Old Testament ceremonial law to an unsuspecting victim and say, look, it says don't eat pork. If you don't know the whole Bible, though, your conscience is going to be taken captive. And you're going to become a slave to men. Now, it's interesting that these actually, in this first part, these came with divine warrant, but they're expired, right? So, um, we have to remember, even things that had divine warrant, if they have expired ceremonially, cannot bind the Christian's conscience much less as we'll consider in the last part of this text, things men will invent out of, out of thin air, right? So if these things that have divine warrant have expired and cannot bind your conscience, how much less the things that men will invent of themselves? Second, the apostle goes past men who bind you to fulfilled ceremonial laws of God, things that are found in the revelation of God, then to men who create their own revelation. Let no man beguile you of your reward in voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. You know, first of all, you'll find that men, instead of taking you to God through Christ, will take you to saints and to angels, won't they? They're all wrapped up in some bizarre notion of humility, as the apostle says, that you ought to be very, very humble. You must not go to Christ the mediator. Why not instead go and be humble, go to the saints, go to the angels instead? Go to your priest. Why don't you do that? You know, this is the doctrine of Rome. Rome says we should pray to the angels who are given to us as guardians. Now, with the Bible being so clear on these things, it's no wonder that the Pope doesn't want you to read the Bible, right? 
because it would contradict exactly what we're reading here. The Bible, for your conscience sake, says prayer is to be offered to God only. The great sin in Romans one twenty five is man changeth the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature. That is, angels and saints are included in that, more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So where does this doctrine come from then to go to angels and saints? Well, there are a host of men and women in churches who believe not what the Bible says, but what some man-made authority has told them. Where do you get that from? Some man has told you, go and pray to angels, go and pray to saints, go and confess your sins to the priest. And they believe that these men have a direct pipeline to God. Think of Rome's magisterium that issues dogmas left and right. They all have a great outward show of humility, as the apostle says. You know, that's what makes doctrinal poison easier to swallow, isn't it? Sounds very humble, sounds very pious, and we are often taken in by these things, such that now people will mutter, Hail Mary, full of grace like a robot, thinking this is a work of humility. But they have been bound in their conscience to a man or pray to a so-called guardian angel because a man with some authority told you that is right. You don't do it because God told you to do it. You do it because some man has imposed on your conscience. You know, how many will say my priest or sad to say my pastor said do this or that as though it settles the matter. It doesn't settle the matter. What God says settles the matter, not what man As the text says, such men are beguiling you. And the Greek under the word beguiling has a sense of robbery. Listen, they are robbing you from Christ. That is bondage, not liberty. Such men, they appear humble, but they are pompous and prideful to tell you that God is speaking when God is not spoken. It's an evil thing. No, we have enough to say about the papacy, but in Protestant settings, now men are saying they have had direct revelation from God. That is prevalent, not only limited to Pentecostalism, but prevalent in so many sectors of the church now. They might even express, and this might sound perhaps benign to you. It is not benign. They might say something, they'll express the will of God for your life. Oh, God says you must marry this person or that person. Now, what a strain that is on conscience to hear that. That a man, perhaps a pastor, comes to you and say, you know what God is telling me you must do with your life? This. And if the man hasn't pointed to the Bible and says something like, you know what God has told me? Thou shalt, uh, told you, thou shalt not covet. Fine, let a man say that. But don't let a man come and tell you something God has not said. That is to bind your conscience. You think of how many young Christians especially who've had their consciences bound because some authority figure has said such and such is what God has told them. That is to deny Christ as Lord of your conscience. That's a strain. That is a man seeking to domineer you. Paul says such a person intrudes into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Mind. Your only rule, my only rule for faith and life is what? The word of God. Isaiah 8.20 To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. No extra biblical revelation can come to bear on the consciences of God's people. It is bondage 
Don't think of it as anything less. These days you have men and women too, strangely calling themselves apostles in the church, such that they'll give themselves extra biblical authority and extra biblical revelation to bind your conscience. Run away because these will seek to take away your liberty. End of story. Now let a man speak to us according to the very oracles of God. That's how we're nourished by Christ our head. Verse 19 says of those with extra biblical revelation that they are not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bonds having nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth with the increase of God. We're nourished by the revelation of God and not by vain imaginations of men. It's vain to follow the doctrines and commandments of men. They may seem wise to you, but to your soul, they're like junk food. They're like poison, rather. Instead of edifying you, it will kill you. The Bible's clear on that. How many souls are taking in poison rather than being taken to Christ? It makes you weep. A poisoned conscience is a terrible thing, beloved. To make a man do what is wrong in God's eyes or to not do what is good in God's eyes is an awful, awful thing. And yet many consciences are domineered by men like this. It's ruinous. That takes us to the third way men seek to be lords of your conscience and impose on it by their own invented ordinances, creating ordinances for Christ's church. Not ones found in the Bible, but new ones that they impose by fiat. Verses 20 through 23. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using. And here's the phrase again. After the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Um, it's very plain to see that there are ordinances and practice that are instituted in churches completely that are the commandments and doctrines of men, touch not, taste not, handle not. They're coming by the authority of men and not of God. You know, I'll repeat what I said. It is a pernicious thing when men take on the authority of God to create commandments and doctrines for men in the church. That is to take on a power that Christ has not given any man and when they craft their own commandments and doctrines, what happens? They displace God's. That's always what happens. God's commandments get shoved aside so that you will follow the commandments and doctrines of men. Now, I, I think it's quite obvious here, and it's quite instructive, actually, and we would be wise to pay attention to what the apostle says. There's a bait on the hook, isn't there? That makes it easier to swallow the commandments and doctrines of men. The Holy Spirit says these things have a show of wisdom. And they have a show of humility. Well, they sound very pious. And they find sound very edifying. And they sound very wise. And that's the bait on the hook that we have to be aware of. You know, you think of a show of humility, right? Abstain from this or that when God has not said to do so. You think of Lent, right? Lent sounds very humble, sounds very pious, doesn't it? Has a show of wisdom and humility about it. But mark this well, it is poison. It is poison to your soul. 
because God has kept your conscience free from the imposition of church authority to legislate something like that to you. At the end of the day, this is what Paul calls will worship. You are serving God according to the will of man and not according to the will of God. That is will worship, whether it's your own will and you are doing it yourself, or it is another man who is imposing upon your conscience his will for worship or service to God. If it is not in accordance to God's will, it is bondage, brethren. It is not only unlawful, it is actually bondage you have put yourself into. And that's what people don't understand. You know, the devil's quite good at corrupting and twisting everything, turning everything upside down right in the garden. What God had said was good to abstain from the fruit he made Eve think was evil. And so there are many Christians who will willingly give themselves up to bondage like Eve did by saying, well, no, I have the liberty to follow man-made commandments and doctrines. Not understanding like Eve in the garden to take a bite of that is to put yourself in bondage. And that's what we have to get a hold of, that we are, dece- we are deceived by our hearts, aren't we? The human heart is so deceitful. Your conscience in matters of service to God must be bound to the word of God. That is true liberty of conscience. Well, I suppose the elephant in the room looms quite large on December 24th, doesn't it? Because all man-made holy days follow this principle. You know, there's a show of wisdom in it, right? The church ought to consider the incarnation once a year. Well, that sounds wise, doesn't it? We need a reminder of the incarnation because we're prone to forget it. That sounds very humble, doesn't it? We forget that God took on the nature of men in order to save sinners. All sounds very holy, sounds very pious, but it is an imposition on church, by church authorities to say this must be done in the church. And that's the problem. See, we often, like Eve, are tempted to think something that is evil is good. It has a show of wisdom. It has a show of humility. Who has put this on the church of God? It's the church of Rome, of course, once again. So you take what you have learned from this text and see such things are of no spiritual value. In fact, these things are detrimental to your spiritual health and growth uh, in Christ, as we see in verse 19. These are not things by which we will hold the head. Just, um, I was talking to some brothers earlier today. We come to church, and we, especially on this day, look around, and you see how the spirituality of the church has been degraded in this time. Right? You look at all these lights and shows and concerts. You look at all the materialism and everything else, and this is where the bondage has now shown itself, hasn't it, so fully. And now we are even a bond, in bondage to our credit cards because some man has imposed on the church these things. So let us be mindful that there is no true liberty in doing anything that God has, said, uh, has not said to do. You know, the world sees Christ as a kind of child God as well this time of year, rather than the Lord of glory, uh, who is the Lord of the conscience, right? Enthroned above the nations as potentate of the world. Now, I did not come to preach an anti-Christmas sermon. I preached that last year. And so I'm just using this as a potent illustration today of what the apostle says in Colossians 2. 
And I want you to consider Calvin's warning from the principles of this text that the binding of the conscience, it often is done in subtle and small ways. But beginning bind, this is Calvin, beginning bind in such a way that in the course of time they strangle in the end. In the end, you are strangled, your spirituality, your vitality in the Lord, gone. You know, if a man can make you willingly, right, willingly observe a seasonal worship service, don't be surprised if that same man can make you do anything. Anything at all. And don't be surprised if he can strangle the true word-given spirituality in verse 19. And as you think on this warning from the word and what Calvin says, remember what you learned last week, that you and I are prone to hand our consciences over to men. We are prone to hand over to men authority that they do not have and must not have. That's what Galatians taught us and that's what Colossians is teaching us. That's what the Lord in Matthew's gospel taught us. Call no man master, but we are to be like who? The Bereans, testing all things according to the word of God. Not even an apostle founded in his authority to bind the consciences of those in Berea, but was delighted that they would search the word to see if these things were so. That tells you the limits of men on the conscience. You know, it's strange, but what we think of as freedom is bondage if the word does not teach it in matters of faith. You know, we are to contend, as I said earlier, for liberty of conscience. Look at the, if you think that man (laughs) is not prone to give his conscience over to other men, look at the one billion Roman Catholics who follow the Pope willing to do whatever that man of sin says. That should tell you that we are prone to follow human authorities. Or of all the Protestants, let's not just pick on Rome, all the Protestants who believe things by implicit faith because their minister said it. Or implicitly believe things because of the tradition of their church rather than scripture. I'm a Presbyterian, I've always done this. I'm a Methodist, I've always done this. I'm a Baptist, I've always, we've always done this. That's implicit faith. You are to believe things not by implicit faith, but you are to believe them because the scripture says so. Young people, and, and sometimes we don't think on this, but it is also sinful for you to believe the truth implicitly. It is sinful for you to believe what is true without checking to see if God says so. That's implicit faith too. You know, a lot of people believe on implicit faith, good things. However, it is sinful in God's eyes unless you look at the scriptures to see if these things are so. Then you believe it. Then you cherish it. You know, there are many young people in the RP church who just do what their parents do and do not do it because this is what God says to do. Even good and true things. But it's sinful to believe. It's sinful to practice just because the church on her authority says so. This is why in the preaching of the word, in our catechism time, and in every point in the ministry of this church, we seek to take you to the Holy Scripture. That is proper for conscience sake. Otherwise, you betray liberty of conscience 
even reason itself. But Christ has freed your conscience to serve God according to God's word and no mere man's. You know, the effect on conscience, in fact, when we heed men rather than God, ought to greatly concern us. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3 says this. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. To bind ourselves to the doctrines and commandments of men is to, in fact, sear our conscience. It'll sear our conscience such that our conscience no longer knows what is right or wrong because it has been informed by men and not by God. That's a dreadful thing. Now your conscience is way out of tune, out of alignment. You can't even perceive your left hand from your right anymore. You see, the danger comes because our conscience can be seared if it is not stuffed with the word of God. You know, consider how you might have spoken to somebody who holds unbiblical views, right? You seek to show them out of the word of God the things that are so according to the word. And what do you get in response? Vitriol, hatred, but No scripture comes back to contend with you. Why? Because their conscience has been seared. Their conscience has been seared and they will no longer, the truth will no longer penetrate their heart. That's a dreadful place to be. That leads to another truth you must deposit in your conscience. Liberty of conscience is not the liberty to pursue sin then. To pursue sin with the so-called liberty of conscience is actually to sear your conscience and it will destroy you if it is not repented of. You heard last week in Luke 1, Christ has freed us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in what? Holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Christ did not free us, beloved, to make sin the Lord of our conscience which is what you do when you willingly sin. It's a thing also to recognize that there are men in the church who will teach you that you can sin with impunity. Flee. Flee from such men. Listen to the warning of the word of such men from Peter, 2 Peter 2.19. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. See, the things that we think are, are, are the things of freedom are actually so often the things of bondage like Eve found out. Do not ever think you have been given the freedom to sin. No, you have been freed. Why? To not sin. Christ has broken the power of sin over you. He did not break sin's dominion over you just so you can hand your conscience, here it is, to sin, brethren. That would be absurd and would destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is to serve him in holiness and righteousness all the days of your life. So stuff your conscience with the word of God, brethren. For help in moral duties, you can look at our larger catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments so you would know how to walk in holiness. Look at the scriptures cited so that you would know your duty to God and neighbor. 
Make your conscience captive to the word through godly helps. Read your whole Bible, first of all, but then use godly help so you can see these things are so in the scripture. When it comes to worshiping God, learn to worship God. Uh, you can use the scripture proofs for our confession of faith and its chapter on worship. Lays out the elements of worship so plain in the Bible. So that we would fill our conscience with the things that please God in worship and not what men teach us to do. Go to the scriptures always. Don't take the confession. Again, that would be implicit faith. Look at the scriptures it cites to see if these things are so. Often we do what pleases our flesh in worship and not what pleases God. And that's because our conscience is not informed. Well, with time running out, um, we'll have to consider obedience and disobedience to governing authorities and conscience next time. But let me just say this. We do not have a blank check to uh, disobey governing authorities, whether in church or in state. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14 will say that. 2 Peter, uh, or yeah, he'll also say in verse 16 there, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. But in the other direction too, nor is there a blank check given to governing authorities to be lords of our conscience either. Acts 5 will teach that plainly. Um, you are and I are subject to governing authorities and their rules and commandments for us only if they, these things are in accord with the word of God, right? Both in church and in state. You know, you cannot, you cannot do anything your conscience says that is clear, but the ch church and the state also can't discipline you um, for anything that the word of God says to do. Now, in, we'll talk about disobedience in church and state. Often we'll have to pay a price for it, won't we? We're not saying, you know, there's an appropriate way to disobey. These are the nuances that we don't have time for. But let me just say this. Our obedience is checked by the word of God. And sometimes our disobedience is mandated by Christ. And we must be okay with the penalties that come. And in fact, we must say that we ought to obey God rather than men. Whatever man shall do unto me, I fear God. Right? If the government says, right, you must bake a cake for a gay couple, they say do it or else we will fine you. Uh, we might even imprison you. Well, you have to be willing for conscience sake not to follow the authorities in that case, but rather to disobey. And if I'm in jail, and if I lose all my money, so be it, right? If the government says, and maybe this is a bit more controversial, you must take this vaccine, it's your moral duty. And you know that this vaccine especially uh, was experimented on, on fetal cells or something like that. What are you to do for conscience sake? If I lose my job, whatever, I will not violate my conscience because my conscience is bound to the word of God. And if the church says you are to light an Advent candle in the worship of God, what are you to do? Are you to obey your elders? No. I must rather obey God rather than man. God has not said he wants this. My conscience is captive to the word of God unless I am convicted by God and plain reason. I will not do anything because my conscience is captive to the word of God. Because as Romans 14.23 says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So understand you might 
might suffer for these things, but we disobey because we would rather have Christ as Lord of our conscience rather than pastor or president or pope. And when we disobey, we will rejoice with the apostles that we were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Well, we'll also have to handle other matters of conscience another time. How do we handle the things called indifferent, adiaphora, matters without religious significance, neither good nor evil? How do we deal with liberty of conscience when we deal with a weaker brother? What are we at liberty to lay aside and what are we not at liberty to lay aside? These are important ethical considerations when it comes to conscience, needful to explore as we build out the doctrine. But until then, may the Lord help us fill our consciences with the word of God so that we can say with the apostle and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Acts twenty four sixteen, And may the Lord help us in these things. Amen. Let us arise for prayer if able. O Lord our God, free our conscience from men and shackle it to Christ in his word. May we be those who will always have their consciences sought to be informed by the word. And may we suffer any price to keep and maintain Christ as Lord of our conscience. May we, may be, may we see that there is something glorious to suffer even for Christ uh, if men seek to impose on ourselves their lordship rather than Christ's. Help us, Father, to take a stand to know what it is that the word says in matters of faith. Help us to know how to serve God through a well-informed conscience because we need instruction. So open our eyes to see what the word has to say on every point. Help us never to believe anything on implicit faith, but draw our affections to Christ that we may seek to serve him all the days of our life in holiness and godly fear, seeking to do what is right in his eyes and his eyes alone. And may we be willing to suffer reproach and shame to maintain Christ as our Lord. Give us grace to do these things. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.